HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, there's, there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org, on Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or anywhere on the internet, really. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I would love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Big thank you to Emmy Cheese for sponsoring the program today. Today's theme, catering. Depending on where you work and what kind of household you grew up in, the word catering may take on a variety of meanings. It could be bagels and cream cheese with boxes of coffee. It could be deli trays or a tent set up to feed the crew on a TV or film set. A never-ending stream of beverages, snacks, cookies, and a bowl of what we used to call in the TV business candy salad. You've likely been to a wedding or a bar about mitzvah where there are varying degrees of catered meals, from buffet line to family style to restaurant style service. At my own wedding, the caterer turned out to be a drunk, and our families had to jump in and help cook and serve the food. It all ended up delicious, and everyone was happy to do it. We were lucky enough to have some skilled food people in our midst. The world of high-end event catering, covered in Matt and Ted Lee's new book, Hotbox, goes beyond all of that to explain to the rest of us what goes into serving dinner to a 1,000 people in a facility that in most cases lacks any kind of infrastructure to actually accomplish that in a sane and economical manner. I worked for many years in the production end of these same venues doing lighting and rigging. It was an amazing thing to be a part of what hundreds of people were working sometimes for days on end to produce. It would be an event that would be over in a few short hours only to take it apart and do it all over again the next day. 
Thanks, Matt and Ted, for bringing, coming into the studio today to sit down and talk about it. Thank you, Harry. It's Thanks great for to having be us. here. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, we can jump right in and start talking about Hotbox. It's your new book. It comes out tomorrow, yeah. April 9th, 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's kind of a little bit of a departure from your previous books. You yes. guys have written about food for years. You've written some really amazing cookbooks, mostly about Southern Thank food. You. And this one is far more like narrative slash expose, exploratory about catering. Yes. Well, uh, I think it was our most recent Southern cookbook was the Lee Brothers Charleston Kitchen and published in 2013. Yeah. And right about that time, the uh, publishing system, the cookbook publishing system wants you to already have turned in the manuscript for your next cookbook. Right. Because it's like a one year or two year cycle. We just couldn't do that. We couldn't think of a way to slice the Southern food pie thinner. Yeah. <laughs> um, we actually could. We wanted to do the Lee Brothers vegetarian cookbook or the Lee Brothers vegetable love or something, but the system didn't want that. Right. And fortunately for us at that time, this window opened onto a new world that we just were intrigued by and, and recognized hadn't been really discussed much. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I mean, it it really, I think, you know, having been on, like I said, in some of those venues and sort of watched that stuff happen, actually, mm -hmm. before I got into the food business at all, reading your book sort of brought me back to sort of thinking about (laughs) that and realizing you're absolutely right, that they're really, people don't talk about it. People talk about Michelin-starred kitchens, and they talk about what Rene Redzepi is doing at Noma, and they talk about what the food trucks are doing, you know, run by immigrants, and all of these aspects of food, but then you look at the scale and the scope and the quality, really, Mm. of the food that's coming out in these high-end catering halls. And just, you know, how many parties are happening tonight in New York City? Um, And it's probably, you know, hundreds. Yep. And then tomorrow night, too. Right. And the next night. And the next night. (laughs) Uh, The ways in which the invisibility of this world works, um, we still don't fully understand. I mean, but we had to grapple throughout the entire, what what is it, five-year process of making this book and uh, and found it was really interesting the ways in which that um, protects in some ways, um, but also obscures the the really triumphant work of these uh, catering laborers. Yeah, I mean, so, so tell me a little bit about how it came about. It all sort of started at a Beard House dinner, right? That's correct. We were um, at the James Beard House dinner. Uh, uh, um, Stephen Satterfield, the chef at Miller Union in Atlanta, was doing an event there, and he had roped us in to um, help with the cocktail hour snacks because we could do all the prep at my place in Brooklyn Got it. and take that off of his plate. And you know that what that James Beard kitchen is like. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's like not, the size of the studio we're sitting in. Yeah. With yeah. like lower ceilings. And, and so um, his sort of second ace in the hole was he had a buddy through Indie Rock Circles who... He, who he knew was an executive chef for a caterer in New York, Sonia and Castle. And the, um, the chef is Patrick Phelan, who's currently the chef at Long Oven in Richmond, Virginia, mm. or one of the chefs there. But um, back then, he was the executive chef for Sonia and Castle. And so he said, sure, Stephen, you can use my walk-ins, you know, during the pre-prep. And then um, I'll come over and help you, and I'll bring two of my guys. And... Um, you know, watching the catering chefs walk into the James Beard house was a, you know, it was just a different experience for us because you're used, you know, we just, Stephen had worked the James Beard house before right, sure. in the context of being Scott Peacock's sous chef. He'd worked there plenty, so he knew, he knew the drill, but these, you know, just the way that 
three catering chefs, the, the way they carried themselves, the way everything about them was kind of like special ops. Yeah. Um, and, and it just, they were walking in blind. They'd right. never cooked the menu. They'd right. never cooked in that kitchen. They'd never been to Miller Union. They'd never met <laughs> Stephen Satterfield. Right. Uh, they didn't know what the recipes were. Sure. And they had never been to the James Beard house. Right. And, and none of that was an issue for them, and right? Yet, if you picked any other chef off the line, they would have been cringing and saying, oh my, I don't know if I can do this. Right. right. They would have lacked the confidence. Yeah. Well, st- and furthermore, as the evening developed in the heat of battle, Stephen just handed the reins to them. It was... Justin Burdett, who's also a fantastic chef, was assisting Stephen. He, he, was, he was Stephen's chef de cuisine at the time. Chef de cuisine. And uh, Juan and Jorge Soto and Patrick Phelan. And the four of them just, like, did it. But also the techniques they were using. They were putting sheet pans on burners yeah. to maximize their <laughs> griddle space. Griddle yeah. space yeah. and yeah. stuff. And Two they, seared courses back to back, so they needed right, every... They needed as much. Yeah, this whole possible. world opened up to us. We recognized this was not restaurant world, and it wasn't home cooking, of right. course. Right. And so after this experience, we just grilled them over beers. Like, you know, why are you doing it like this? How did you do this? You know, why right. were you not afraid? And it's like the numbers for them, the scale simply was Oh, yeah. I mean, you guys, I'm I'm a a lover of numbers and the idea. I I love looking at things from a certain scale. (laughs) And in the book, you guys cover some like the insane numbers numbers of how many lobster, you know, how many gallons of lobster meat were served in one year. I mean, Harry, like for them, you know, the first thing they said was, you know, we were like, oh, my God, that was amazing. And they're like, but you got to understand that might have been five courses, but it was only 80 covers. Like we don't <laughs> we don't start sweating until it's like 850. Yeah. So anything can be done at the 80 person scale. Like right. if you have to snip the tips off the shrimp tails with a pair of scissors, you can do it for 80 people. You right. can't do it for 800. People. Sure. I mean, and yeah, I mean, when you scale up the logistics of that and then when you scale up the logistics of that, that even if you have a giant restaurant, right, if you go to somewhere like Vegas where you've got these enormous, I mean, New York has some too, but like these really big restaurants, mm-hmm. every table isn't getting the same course at all at the same time, right. right? And so the thing that happens in the, especially the highest end where you really have like the choreographed serving service, you know, everybody is expecting that appetizer at the same time, which is really almost impossible. And ideally it's and the identical <laughs> product. Like yeah, in right. a restaurant, right. you're serving off of a menu. So people aren't ordering the same thing, right. it, hopefully. Yeah. But, you know, imagine if it was identical things delivered simultaneously that that puts pressure on the kitchen in ways that you just couldn't fathom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it really, that whole simultaneous service thing, you know, ideally it happens in, uh, 15 minutes. Like everyone gets the same, regardless of the numbers, regardless of the numbers, like that's the way you divide the work down. It's like, how many kitchens are we going to have at this venue? is determined by the numbers. So, I mean, looking at this and, and sort of taking kind of, I guess, a zoomed out approach, it comes down to a lot of the same things, I think, that you try to teach people when you're teaching them to be a better cook at home, which mm-hmm. is you need to be prepared, right? Well, I mean, like, this is mise en place, but on this, like, fantastically large level where, like, yeah. you really need to have all of your carrots, like, cut and blanched and ready, like, not just, like, that morning, but, like, two days before. Yes. Prep be- begins on Monday for a Saturday party. Right. I mean, there's no way around it. You yeah. just have to be so sort of military about it that um, that everything is dialed in. Mm-hmm. You have to organize. And you have to, I mean, you sort of have to be that way at every step in the journey. One of the biggest, um, you know, challenges is if there's three parties that a caterer is doing in New York on one night, those three, depending on where they are, they might be in the same truck. So right. you have to load that truck 
in series and you right. have to know, you know, it's just so tight. The tolerances are so tight and there's no real room for error because if you leave that proofer full of the main course on that truck that's going to Jersey after it hits the New York Public Library. Yeah, you're right. never going to get it back. Right, right. Get it back. And, and also contemplate. So these parties begin planning nine months out, yeah. ideally. Um, and then the day arrives and the party planner decides to swap out one dessert for another. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the contingencies that arise on the day of are insane. And anyone who RSVP'd, mm-hmm. I want the fish, they might change their opinion. Right. <laughs> um, but by the time the dinner rolls around. And so what do you do as the executive chef? Well, you just roll with it. Hopefully you have a, a plan for that. Hopefully you've oversupplied yeah. one item or another, um, or hopefully you can do a rerun or send someone out to a local bodega. Right. To buy something. Right. To buy something. <laughs> um, you know, that improvisational skill set seems to be embedded in everyone who seeks out catering as a career. Sure. And, and those style of events in general, right? I mean, mm-hmm. from the lighting side, which I have a lot of experience with, the same thing was true. The, you know, the party planner might come to the lighting crew, you know, 20 minutes before the door opens and say, you know, I really don't want these lights to be yellow. I'd like them to be orange instead, <laughs> mm-hmm. which, you know, technologically now we can change that, you know, now, now right, that's possible right. to change. But 20 but years ago when I started this, it wasn't, you had right. to send out people to change for every gels. single gel in front of yeah. every single yeah. light because that's what they asked for. Right? right. And, you know, and there is this way in which you as the professional want to say, actually, no, <laughs> but there is sort of no no in, right. yeah, that's totally in true. the context of these events because it's there for the, the most way. part, especially in New York, luxury products. Absolutely. I mean, like it's like haute couture, you know, yep. it's creating a dinner where a dinner doesn't exist in a venue where yeah. there's no kitchen. It exist. And and yeah. so it's very custom yeah. and it's hard to say no in the context of any of that kind so of stuff. So tell me about the, the title of the book. Did you know very early on that you were gonna call it Hotbox? Hotbox, um, jumped out at us early. In fact, the working title, though, was Comfortable in the Zone. Okay. Um, it was one of the things that first night that Patrick Phelan told us. He said, as a catering chef, you have to be comfortable in the zone. And what he was referring to was the danger zone because there's so much oh, holding food. Right. You know, someone's toast goes on too long or just the process is such that, you know, you've Sure, you've cooked food two days before. Well, you put it in a walk-in. You put it on a day. truck. Right. There's an accident in the tunnel. Exactly. Right? Like, I mean, exactly. <laughs> the five-hour trip on the LIE to right. East Hampton. Yeah. Um, a lot happens, and you have to just be comfortable in it. If it bedeviled you, then catering's not for you. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so the folder that we keep all the files in is CITZ because it's comfortable in the zone. But Hotbox kind of jumped out on us. It sounds a little bit like in sync with the risky business thing yeah. and, and there's other associations as well, the, but the, the sort of intensity and the pressure conf- cooker conf- confined spaces, yeah. the intensity, um, but you know, it refers to what it actually refers to is, um, you know, what in some places, in most places in the country is called a transport cabinet, you know, right. the aluminum box on wheels, five and a half feet tall that you move all the sheet pans of food on. Um, you know, what's unique about New York, catering is that because you're not allowed to use propane anywhere in the city to cook food, that's what par cooked is being rewarmed at. Right. In, They've in, hacked yeah. this yeah. transport <laughs> cabinet with sternos. <laughs> yeah. You'll put it's a sheet amazing. pan, uh, one or two sheet pans with five sternos or 12 sternos on it in there. And you can create a pretty functional oven. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until uh, the 1970s when Jean-Claude Nedelec um, from uh, Glorious Food figured that out. 
he was actually at the time working at the Plaza Hotel Banquet Hall where they had this heroic distance between the dining room and the kitchen, like a hundred yards. Mm. And he was trying to figure out a way to like keep the food warm over that distance. <laughs> and he figured this out and it turned out to be the most efficient way to do the job. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I remember uh, one of the first times I saw it on site and I thought, that's insane. But when you think <laughs> yeah. about the reasons, I mean, that, that New York's laws are such that you can't have open flame with, right. without fire suppression, all yeah. these things, you look at it and make, I mean, it makes perfect sense. And it, I mean, it, it can go wrong. I definitely have seen it. I've seen it go wrong. <laughs> oh, uh, for sure. There's, <laughs> the, you know, everyone has the, a story of when they set off this fire extinguishers yeah. or when they extinguished all of the food and didn't realize it because they shut, someone shut the door too tightly and right. so snuffed out the oxygen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You just have to have thousands and thousands of hours of experience with them to know how to do it. It's insanely analog. It's like we make the analogy in the book. It's like flying a hot air balloon. Right. You know, you have no controls except how wide the door is open. Right. There's no temperature gauge. Yep. You're just touching it. Yeah. You know, and your fingertips are yeah. everything. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, it, you talk about in the book how it is the it is the high end of the high end, right? The people who are attending these two and five thousand dollar a plate galas and fundraisers are people who, you know, eating at La Bernadette is not a once in a lifetime experience. Right. right. Rubber They're, chicken is not going to fly yeah. with that crowd, <laughs> especially when they paid three thousand dollars a plate. And yeah. so these catering chefs are reaching for the stars. They are trying to emulate restaurant quality food, but they're out under a tent in the rain in Battery Park. Like, they're trying to to do that with the gravest handicaps, you know, both hands tied behind their back, basically. Right. I mean, you talk, you, you write in the book about uh, a party, or I guess in parlance of the of the industry, it's called a fiesta. Yes, right? yeah. Uh, called In the Void, mm-hmm. which was really yeah. pushing the boundaries of, like, performance art yeah. and party, but, but that the food was actually a little bit tamer than it seemed like it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. I mean, yeah, do, do you think, was... do you feel like that is how this world, that world works, that people are pushing the envelope in terms of the lighting and the performances mm-hmm. and who's performing and aerialists and all this stuff, but the food is sort of staying in this kind of like fancy, but tame environment? I do think so in, for the most part, I mean, and fundamentally like no matter how awesome uh, you know, no, no matter how engaged that that client is, who's going to that like f- far out thing, I think fundamentally they actually just want comfort food, especially <laughs> right. in the context of something that's kind of out there performance art sure. thing. I mean, I know there are there are um, firms that sort of specialize in a style of food where the food is the performance, right? Um, it depends on the context. I mean, in the example you gave, it was clear that the whole aura of it and the decor and everything and the performance was going to kind of be it. I mean, there were people on bicycles and, and fog machines and stuff like that. So that's an exception. And I would advise in that situation that the food be kind of on safe territory, but in other truly safe territories, like really boring, you know, boardrooms and stuff, sometimes the food does, you know, have elements that you'd expect in, um, you know, James Beard nominated, um, of the moment kitchen. Um, it can be done, especially if the scale is small. Right. I mean, do you think that there is a place in the Beard Awards for this sort of aspect of catering and cooking and large scale food? Absolutely. We're, we're a little bit confused by why it doesn't already exist a catering category because 
if you think about it, like every event at the Beard House is essentially an off-premise event. Yeah. For a cat for for the restaurant. Their business yeah. model is built on catering. Right. Whether it's the dinners, like the one that Stephen did at the house, where it's a chef out of his or her comfort zone you know, doing an off-premise event or at the awards ceremony where they've got stations set up around the room for that reception afterwards. Sure. And um, all that, uh, and great performances, which is a big catering yeah. firm in New York, usually facilitates all those events that the Beard House does. So they're a partner in those events to make the off-site logistics happen. Sure, because they're regardless so good at it. <laughs> of, Right, because they're good at it and they know how it works and they can do the work with the chef who may not have experienced an off-premise event on that level right. to... It may, make it, happen. it may expose a class, an old class distinction mm. that, that once existed. Um, of course, James Beard himself was a caterer, right. mostly of hors d'oeuvres <laughs> yeah. back in the 1950s. But anyhow, uh, we're hopeful that we're beyond that and yeah. that the time is right. Well, and, and when you look at sort of like the, you know, one of the things that I've often thought about is like access to the food, right? And so mm -hmm. if you have a place as great as it is, you know, you have like Blanca here at Roberta's, mm -hmm. which is an incredible restaurant. It has 12 seats and it's not even open every night, right? right. And so you look at like one 1,000 person dinner, they've served more people than Blanca will serve in like three years. <laughs> one night. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, experientially and, there's more people and, who experience right. that. Yeah. It's and a it's, popular culture in yeah. a way. And it's just fascinating that both things, both of those experiences are happening on the same night in the same city. Yeah. Incredible. We're going to take a short break and hear from our sponsor today, Emmy Cheese. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, any tips and tricks that you learned in the process that we mm -hmm. can apply to home cooking. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Akiko Katayama, and I'm the host of Japan Needs here on HRN. By interviewing fascinating personalities in Japanese culinary culture, I try to demystify Japanese cuisine. My guests have included sake brewers, tea experts, Japanese whiskey experts, and sushi chefs. You can find Japan Needs whenever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and my guests today are Matt and Ted Lee, uh, known collectively as the Lee Brothers. 
um, and their new book, Hotbox, hits shelves tomorrow, April 9th. And we've been talking about the catering world, uh, mostly here in New York City, although obviously that exists all over the place now in sort of high-end catering as you get to parties in Las Vegas and Los Angeles and Hong Kong and Singapore and all over the, all over the world. So one of the things um, that I wanted to sort of talk about is anything that you learned uh, while doing this that is applic- applicable at home. Um, yeah. You, know, you have a, you have a, the- a sort of fly out in the book of some idea, you know, sheet pan magic, you call right. it, um, which is, you know, techniques that they use in catering. Um, but can you talk a little bit about uh, any of those things and things that you would use at home? That you learned? Yeah. From the, from the hot box to the home. Yeah. Um, the, the, the one thing in my kitchen, um, Matt and I have, we don't live together. We're brothers anymore. Um, right, we don't live together anymore. <laughs> that ended in the late nineties. Um, in my kitchen, what changed like immediately within a couple months of working in catering is that everything now stored in Cambros and deli containers. I mean, I know that's not so different from um, a restaurant, restaurant culture, sure, but, but but literally the 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 efficiency of those units and storage and all that kind of stuff just completely changed. Labeling everything, right? That's another thing that changed in my own fridge. Just everything with blue tape. Sharpie, the date, the what it is, you know, the process. Um, That's so interesting because in the in the catering world, you're doing it so that when someone else opens that box that you've packed, exactly right, they know what it is. Exactly. But in your own kitchen, but I need to be reminded, like, <laughs> oh my gosh, was that bean broth or shrimp stock? Right. You know, it's like, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it, and, and did I make that last week or the week before? Right. <laughs> but but I do think it had an, an impact on on how I cook because it makes me, um, you know, it makes me. Um, use more like the, I, the, it's much less waste in my own kitchen. Mm. Um, waste is a whole other discussion in catering, but sure. so much less waste in my own kitchen, such better food because I'm not throwing out that shrimp broth because I don't know when it went in, when it, you know, um, so that was for me, that kind of changed the game. Uh, for me, this is Matt, the older brother. Um, and the one who probably cooks less cause I've got three kids. Um, but what, so I'm under more stress, right. presumably. <laughs> um, it allowed me to embrace um, preparing ahead of time and holding food, um, whether it's peeling the carrots ahead of time uh, or chopping the entire, you know, just doing all that prep that you need to, like even three or four days out. Yeah, I think um, that's a and great not suggestion. Worrying too much, being too like squeamish about holding food and even just putting the color on the protein a day ahead. Wow. It might actually improve. It certainly won't get crispier. Yeah. Um, but it may be the difference between enjoying that dinner and not enjoying that dinner. If it means that you're more present. Yeah. I mean, not doing as much of the labor that night. I mean, you know, a light bulb, I feel like just went off over my head. I mean, I have two kids and, you know, we cook a lot, probably more than we really like have time for because we're committed to it. But I had never even, you know, of course I think about like, yeah, when you get the greens home, chop them all up and rinse them all and like keep them stored in a bag rinsed. But I haven't, I'd never, you know, like, oh, I can peel and like blanch all the carrots. Right. Mm -hmm. And searing the protein, I'm just like, that blew up my brain. I was (laughs) like, oh, wait, you mean when I have time on like a two Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. after I drop the kids at school, I could actually sear off the protein for dinner that night. And then cooking dinner will take so much less time when I get home and I'm really rushed. You're just like, you could practically do it in, in the toster oven. Yeah. I've gotten much more comfortable with, sh- I've got more sheet pans now. Yeah. And the half size and quarter size and stuff, like they're so, it's just, I'm a little bit more um, uh, comfortable um, kind of 
switching between oven and toaster oven. I don't have a microwave and and the stovetop. You know, you're just a little bit more fluid about it. And my wife sometimes scratches her head and is like, "What the hell are you doing? That looks gross. <laughs> Whatever you're doing looks <laughs> gross." Um, but and I'm just like, trust me, trust yeah, me, yeah. It's, it's okay. I've seen this done before. And it's do you think do you think it's led to more improvisation in your cooking? Definitely. Although I'm probably the more improvisational Lee brother. Ted loves to have a game plan, yeah, and I prefer I like not the to. Shopping list, the game plan. Um, let's talk a little about the big pink hippo. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I would imagine anybody listening to this, if you are anywhere on the East Coast of the United States or you have been anywhere on the East Coast of the United States in the last 20 years, you've seen these trucks. They're usually like 20 foot box trucks and they say party rentals limited on the side and they have a big pink pig, big pink hippo on them. Um, we used to refer to them colloquially as the party pigs, uh, <laughs> even though we know it's a hippo. Yeah. Um, but so that is like, to me, that's this very interesting driving undercurrent of all of this. And, yeah. and you talk about in your chapter about them that, you know, they have a 300,000 square foot warehouse in New Jersey and they supply everything. Yeah. And at so many of these events, the other thing that allows it to happen aside from a huge army of prep cooks and people doing all this stuff ahead of time is that none of these venues and none of these caterers own any of the stuff, the tables, chairs, napkins, uh, you know, hot boxes, mm. racks, ovens, fryers, popcorn chairs, machines, smoke machines. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> all, all of it's, it. It's right? all rented. Yeah. yeah. And that that is just an, an incredible churn of stuff and the economics of it and the size of it and the employment. I mean, all of it is really amazing. And again, it's, as you pointed out earlier about the catering, it's almost invisible except yeah. for the trucks. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a fascinating business and it, it, it's, uh, it arose, it's, it was a couple, the Halperins who started it and it's still privately owned mm. and yet they have cornered the market. They, you know, it, for that kind of industry, you um, outcompete your competitors by just having more stuff. Yeah, I mean, you say in the book, which I thought was so fascinating, that they grew organically starting in mm -hmm. 1972 and just got so big that it's impossible for anybody to take them on because you'd had the capital investment would be so Insane. unbelievably large that no, but no venture capital firm would ever yeah. fund it. It's kind of like Amazon's game in a more old school way. <laughs> yeah, it's right. just yeah. to kind of crowd out the market. And so they've done that. And so it's an incredible laboratory for studying what catering is and what it means. Yeah. And we were fortunate to um, meet Jim McManus, um, someone who's been a salesperson in the industry for a long time. And, a little bit of loose lips. Like we um, spent enough time with him that he shared some of the secrets right. with us. <laughs> um, like the guy in his phone, he knows since they have a virtual monopoly, he knows what every caterer is doing on any given night. Right. And he knows what their competitors are doing. And he, by just relative value, he can see how they're doing financially. Oh, sure. Right. right. By how, what their orders and, look like. And, and what their... he's also a really great gossip. And so he knows <laughs> everything about everyone in catering. <laughs> Um, but also we were able to, um, rent a hot box and test drive it. One of these tall aluminum transport cabinets and we failed miserably at it. Um, but we took the barcode and we took it to him and said, print us out a spreadsheet oh. of everywhere this hot box has been in a year. Oh, wow. It's like those, uh, those dollar bills you get that say, where's George? Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a spreadsheet of 45 different events in a single calendar year in the New York city area that was 
and we went through and analyzed it. I won't bore you with it. It's in the book. Um, but it was fascinating. Out of all of that, there was just one wedding. It's an indicator of how few weddings go down in oh, New York wow. because New York is so expensive. Right. Um, but there were other insights as well that were just really interesting. Yeah. How much yeah. this equipment travels on yeah. average. Right. Um, uh, which was like 23 miles. The equipment at your event in New York has will more or less travel in a day. Wow. But there's, I mean, there's so much interesting stuff about that, that business, um, because not only is it a big rental business, it's also, since they do all the linens, they have to wash them every night. Right. Um, they have, they're like one of the largest dry cleaners on the East Coast. Oh, just because, by virtue just of Just by virtue of doing as many linens as wow. they do. It's and they wash all the plates and glassware, right? Yeah, I mean, like, they're basically gets, all gets returned dirty. a sanitation thing. Right. Because um, everything has to be turned around for the next day. Yeah. Clean. So, <laughs> and as Jim expressed, like, can you imagine if I sent a load of clean stuff to your house and a cockroach crawled out of that order? Like, I mean, it would, it would it end to be my, spotless, right. you know? So it's, it's like a, a hauling and carting operation, a rentals business and a sanitation department, you know, right. it's like, uh, and it exists every night, you know, every yeah. night. I also love that you break it down and you say, look, you know, most of their, 80% of their business is people who spend over a quarter million dollars a year with mm -hmm. them. But I could call them today. Yeah. And as long as it's, I was willing to spend 350 bucks or whatever it is, $375, I million, could have yeah. stuff for tomorrow if I had to, if I was throwing a birthday party yeah, like for a friend. The deadline, the cutoff is 4 p.m. So if, you know, if right. you get your order in before 4 p.m. and you, it's minimum $325, the pink $50 each way, yeah. delivery fee, you know. It's, it's just, it's amazing. And, and the idea that you can do that, right? And and it's like, oh, well, okay, yeah. I'm having dinner for 12 oh. people and I need four <laughs> plates for each and I need all this stuff, but I don't own it. Sure. Just rent it and then send it back dirty. You don't have to clean it and it all yeah. disappears. You don't have to store it. Yeah. And the other thing is it's, it's sort of an old school because it started, um, you know, with this couple, Michael and Sonny Halpern, it's a, it has a very old school family vibe. And the first, my first consciousness of who Jim McManus, the salesman who eventually, you know, gave us a tour of the place was, was that I kept hearing his name because whenever there was a threat of rain, like the weather is everything in catering, right? Yeah. But whenever there was like a weather situation, everyone would call Jim McManus because he's a sailor. And he has and, all these sources. And he has these like maritime sources. And so you could like out game, like this was before dark sky. This was like 2012, 2013. Um, you know, he, he, it would be like, oh, you think they'll be right? Call Jim McManus, you know, and it's a very personal business. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it's, and you can tell from that clumsily rendered pink hippo, it's yeah. kind of, you know, it's not New York quality, but it's warm and cuddly. Right. You know, it feels relatable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you won't mistake their goods for other people's goods because they're this hideous shade of pink. Right. Right, Which yeah, all their, all their boxes and all yeah. their storage containers. You don't want to keep it because yeah. it's a shade of pink that yep. clashes with everything yeah. you own. <laughs> it's very, very smart. So, what do you think is the like? What does the future of catering look like? It's a great question because um, I think it largely depends on the economy. Yeah. I mean, the thing that we sort of talk about in in the book is that um, we work for a firm, Sonia and Castle, that's very into customization. Like, if the client wants every dish to be a tribute to a trip they took, you know, they'll do the R and D they'll make it happen. And that we think came about in the wake of 2008 when everyone, oh. when, um, you know, you had sort of had to say yes to everything. Yeah. 
you know? So if yep. it was, you know, a hot dog party, you had to do that, you know? Yeah. It's, it's hard to pull the bar back from that once you right. set that expectation. Right. You can't um, go to somebody after one year making up 14 mm-hmm. specific dishes for them and the next year be like, well, here's our menu. And you get to choose one of each. <laughs> well, yeah. right. You have to understand the pendulum swings back and forth between, um, you know, full customization and a menu of options, A, B, C, D, and E, that the catering firm does well. Yeah, but we, we feel like the pendulum is swinging, swinging back, back toward that because it's more sane. Like, right. yes, of course, trust what the caterer does well. Why would you push them to do out of their comfort zone what they right. can't do well? Right. Because the consequences are pretty disastrous. Yeah. Right. Or they, you know, they could be. I mean, a lot of people will execute it no matter what, but that just to to sort of think about the humaneness of that. And I think mm-hmm. part of that is I've, I've heard that um, one party planner said, you know, I'm doing tastings with Blue Hill. Um, and they're saying we're not committing to exact items on the dish, but we're going to give you what, you know, you'll be served what's seasonal, what's perfectly fresh, but it's going to be something in this style. Right. And, but and not resisting specific item. You know, yeah. resisting that thing where, um, you know, you look at the event grid and literally every, you know, every past appetizer has seven elements and each one is spelled out. And if you don't hit your marks, someone's going to notice kind of thing. Right. right. Giving flexibility to the caterer and, and that hu- humaneness, like um, there are these walls of invisibility we've discussed between the catering system and the clients and the audience and the guests and the event planners and we're hoping some of that will be punctured that, yeah. you know, you will know the names of your catering chefs yeah. and, co- and conversely that they will know who you are. Most catering firms we encountered didn't know the bride or groom's name at the wedding. I right? wouldn't say the catering firm. I would say the catering chef that, from that, the that's kitchen what I meant. perspective. Yeah, the catering sure. chefs. The Obviously the sales team, the service captains, they all yep. know that stuff. But from yep. the kitchen perspective, it's like, who's the happy couple? We don't know. Right. Right. We're making carrots again. Yeah. Right. Slicing beef tenderloin. So our advice to, people whose wedding it is, is to, you know, pierce the veil, go back behind yeah. that black curtain at some point during the lead up, if you possibly can, yeah. and just make some kind of direct connection with the people who are cooking your food because it will reap dividends yeah. and, um, everyone will be better off for it. I think that's, I think that's a great, great suggestion. I think people should do that more anyway. Right. I mean, exactly. like, yeah. we should, we should know where well, our stuff is coming from, whether it's in food or anything yeah. else. And I think that's in food. You know, that's another way we see a pendulum swinging where the, um, uh, where I know sort of younger cater catering chefs are saying like, I only, I'm only choosing clients who want to have a conversation with me about it. And if I see that they're not giving me my leeway, then it's just not going to be it's right not for me. Yeah. It's not for me. Well, thank you guys so much for coming into the studio. You ha- you're on a kind of a book tour. Yes, we're we getting start. started in New York tomorrow. Right, tomorrow, 92nd Street Y. Awesome. I think tickets mm-hmm. are still available. Cool. If you want to come hear us uh, talk it up with Gail Simmons, oh, top fun. chef. Nice. Yeah. And then where are you going from there? We go to D.C., L.A., Seattle, San Francisco, Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, Atlanta Richmond, Oxford. Charleston. Who I left out? Charleston. Oh, and North Carolina every Durham, which way. Greensboro, Charlotte. Charlotte. Fun. Yep. Sounds awesome. We kind of love the book tour and um, and are you know ruthless about it, and we like <laughs> crash on people's couches and make it efficient as we can. That's great. I mean, and and it's fun and it's nice. You know, I have a brother who I'm very close with, so it's you know I know people who don't mm-hmm. like to spend as much time with their siblings, <laughs> and clearly you guys like to spend a lot of time together. So that's good. Well, most you, of the time, you have some, uh, pretty 
uh, heinous navigation arguments <laughs> out on book tour. <laughs> who dr- who drives and who navigates? Which Matt drives, I navigate, and then it always... I, it, I end up wishing I were the navigator. <laughs> <laughs> well... Thanks again, you guys. Thank the book you. is Thank awesome. You, Everybody Appreciate check it. out Hotbox. Uh, comes out tomorrow if you want an incredible view into what it is like uh, to be a caterer in the high-end world, uh, in, in New York anyway. Um, and, you know, and and really, I mean, you guys did the really hard work. You actually went in there and you worked in these places um, to really find out what it's about. It's not like you were just walking through with a microphone. So I, I have a lot of respect for that. That's four hard years. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Thank everybody, you. for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show, and you can reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer, and I forgot to mention you can follow the Lee Brothers at the Lee Brothers, and you can check out their website, which is mattleeandtedlee.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.